Well, I'm going to uh, put you on the spot this morning. If you did any Bible reading this week, raise your hand. Oh, good. All right, excellent, excellent. Now, I want to ask those of you who raised your hand a question. Now, I don't want you to answer it out loud, but I'd like you to think about it. Why did you read your Bible this week? Did you do so because you wanted to? Because someone challenged you to do so? Because it was a class assignment or because it was something you felt like you, you, you had to do? Now, actually, any of those answers can be good or bad. But the last one is particularly dangerous because you felt like you had to. Now, there's nothing wrong with reading your Bible because you know you should. But if you're reading it because you think your salvation depends upon it, that's a problem. In fact, if you read your Bible, pray, tithe, worship, and witness in order to be saved, you have a problem. If you think God is keeping score, and if you don't measure up to the expected standard when it comes to religious practices, you'll be lost, you have a problem. Now, reading the Bible, praying, tithing, attending worship services and witnessing are all good things, and they're pretty much expected of Christians. You know, if you believe God has spoken, you'll want to know what he said, and you will pray. You'll be in his word. If you know he listens, you'll pray. You've got something to say to a God who hears you. If you believe God has promised to meet your physical needs, you won't feel a need to steal from him. You'll tithe. It's something Malachi taught us. If you believe Jesus loves you enough to die for you, you will worship him, and you'll remember his sacrifice by meeting together around his table on the Lord's Day. If you believe people without Jesus are lost, they're, they're condemned to an eternity separated from their creator, you'll share the gospel with them. You will do all these things, but they're not conditions for your salvation. Doing them will not balance out your debt of sin, nor will they earn you standing before God. They are his will for you, and doing them brings him pleasure, but your relationship with him will not be severed if you fail to do them. You are saved by grace, through faith, in the finished work of Christ, period. You have been saved, are being saved, and will be saved by trusting in what Christ did for you, period. It's all about him and what he did for us, not about us and what we do for him. That is the message 
of Galatians. And Paul has been saying that over and over again, every way he can, because this is a very hard lesson for us to learn. There's an overwhelming tendency to want to tack on works of merit to what Christ has done for us, to add a little law to grace just in case. We want to cover all the bases. We, we trust in Christ. We also think we better add good works into the mix just in case they're taken into consideration. You know, we'd rather have too much than not enough. And we feel more secure if we think we've got both law and grace going for us. Now that's what the Judaizers were saying. And Paul's going to try again to make us understand that law and grace simply do not mix. You can be under law, you can be under grace, but you cannot be under both. We're continuing our study in Galatians. We're now in the fifth chapter, ready for verses 2 through 4. Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. And I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. You have been severed from Christ, you who are seeking to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. Now, Paul isn't entering into the medical debate over the value of circumcision here. He's addressing the theological implications of ceremonial circumcision, and he does so with some shocking words and with the full authority of an apostle. He says, Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. Apparently, the Gentiles in the church hadn't yet followed through on their intended circumcisions, and Paul warns them if they do, Christ will be of no benefit to them. Now, how can he say that? To a Christian, how can he say that Christ will be of no benefit to them? Well, obviously, he's not thinking of Christ's good example or moral teachings. He's thinking about his fundamental role as Savior. If the men of Galatia agreed to ceremonially circumcise themselves, they would be putting themselves back under the law and they would be obligating themselves to keep the whole law. Now there's confusion about circumcision and its purposes. When circumcision was first initiated, it was given as a sign of God's covenant with Abraham. It was a positive reminder that Abraham and his offspring were in a special relationship with God. Now, that covenant was conditioned by faith and trust, and Abraham's descendants did not maintain a faith relationship with God. And so the law was given through Moses. 
to make them aware just how far they had strayed from God's will. And circumcision became a reminder of the need to obey the law of God and a personal pledge to do so. Circumcision was no longer a sign of promise. It was a pledge of obedience. And if the Galatians followed through on circumcision, as the Judaizers were insisting that they do, they would be putting themselves under obligation to keep the law. All of it. And in doing so, they would be telling God they could do what no one had been able to do. That they could keep the law. That they accepted the terms of the law. That they were convinced that they could live in perfect obedience to the law. Now, without understanding the full implication of what they were doing, they would actually be telling God that they didn't need his grace, that they could save themselves. Now, as we've already noted, the primary purpose of the law was to show mankind how far he had strayed from fellowship with God and to make it clear that his fallen nature made it impossible for him to live a life that would be acceptable to a perfect God. God wanted us to understand that he had to provide the way for us to be made acceptable before him, a way that did not depend upon personal merit. You know, God had provided that way through his son, and the Galatians had accepted it. Now, if they chose to enter into a different relationship with God, one based on law and initiated by circumcision, Paul said they would be severed from Christ. They would be saying, in effect, that they did not need him. They could save themselves through obedience to the law. And make no mistake, any attempt to be justified by obedience severs a man from Christ. It cuts him off from Christ because in doing so, he is declaring that he does not need Christ. It moves him from a relationship with God that is dependent upon grace and puts him into a relationship that is based on works, his own works. And Paul says if you do that, you fall from grace. You cut yourself off from the grace of God. And do note that does affirm the possibility of falling from grace, that you can be in grace at one point and then fall out of grace. You can lose the means of salvation. But also note that Paul doesn't say you fall from grace by sinning. You don't lose the grace of God because you fail to live up to his expectations. On the contrary, you fall into grace when you sin. If you're trusting Christ to save you, when you stumble and fall, the safety net of his grace catches you. That is so important to remember. We are going to sin. If we say we have no sin, we're lying, John tells us. That doesn't mean it's okay to sin. But it means when we acknowledge it, when we stumble, when we fall, we don't lose our relationship with God. What we do is we are throwing ourselves 
into the arms of grace, trusting that he will forgive us in spite of our failings. That is so important, so important for us to remember. If you're trusting Christ to save you, when you stumble and fall, the safety net of his grace catches you. I like, I like that picture. I like that picture a lot. You know, and that, here I go, I'm going to run off onto a safety net. Now, don't say, oh, boy, my daughter there. Now, I remember a time when we were in Colorado, right, with the family. And we were riding up the, the, the ski lift to ride down on some kind of fancy whatever it was during the summer. And Matt was in front, in a bench by himself. I think you, were you with him? Oh, you were in the same chair. Okay. And as they get right to the place where you get off, the girl kind of humorously said, well, just jump in the net. Matt, being the obedient one <laughs> and the naive one, jumped. I mean, freaked everybody out. And, and mom and dad are behind him. We're freaking out. But there's a safety net there. That's reassuring. <laughs> you know, even when we do something stupid, It's good to know there's a safety net there. And as long as we're trusting in Christ, we have that safety net. We don't have to think, oh, man, he doesn't love me anymore. He does. We don't have to think, oh, I've just blown it. Well, you may have blown it, but you haven't blown his love. I love that safety net picture. And I hope you'd lock that in because I think it's so important. You don't fall from grace when you sin. But you do fall from grace if you attempt to live under the law. If you, in effect, tell God you don't need what he's provided, that you can save yourself by being good. That's what the Galatians would be doing if they submitted to circumcision. So, yes, you can be under the law, but to do so cuts you off from grace. So you better think again before you start going down that dead-end road you think will lead to God. You better remember what you have under grace. Verses 5 and 6. For we, through the Spirit, by faith, are waiting for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. Faith, working through love. We, we Christians, have come into relationship with God through the Spirit. We were spiritually born again into his family as sons and daughters, and by nature of that birth, were made acceptable to the Father. We did nothing to earn it. We merely accepted it as he instructed us to do. And by faith, we trusted that God had made us acceptable to himself, that he had declared us to be righteous through the merit of Christ's righteousness. And that someday, 
He will actually make us righteous. That one day we'll be given a body that is absolutely free from sin and its effects. A body that will be equal to the spirit we now have as a result of his spirit coming to dwell within us. And for that day, Paul says, we are waiting. We're not working for it. We're waiting for it. We're waiting for the fulfillment of our hope, the hope, the assurance that God will make us righteous. He will make us fit to spend eternity in his presence. And it will have nothing to do with our having kept the law or not, or with our having been circumcised or not. The only thing that will matter is our faith whether we are trusting him to save us or not. Now that trust, that faith, will be evident in our lives, and that's why Paul does add our faith will be working through love. He doesn't want us to get the idea that our waiting will be just sitting around, passively waiting for something. It will be a time of actively expressing our faith through love. It'll be a time of service, of ministry to God and to others in his name. It'll be a time of actively doing things that bring pleasure to our Heavenly Father and refraining from those things that bring him pain, but it will not be a time of earning our salvation by what we do or don't do. Our salvation will come solely through the grace of God we can therefore confidently await his return. That's what it means to be under grace. And it can be ours through Christ. But if we try to tack on a little law, we lose it because we cannot be under both. Paul continues. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion did not come from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. I have confidence in you in the Lord that you will adopt no other view. The one who is disturbing you shall bear his judgment to whoever he is. But I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why am I still persecuted? then the stumbling block of the cross has been abolished. Would that those who are troubling you would even mutilate themselves. He begins, you were running well. The Galatians had gotten off to a good start, and Paul knew that because he had been there at the start of their race. But something had gotten them off course. They had switched lanes, apparently, Something or someone had hindered them. The word used for hindered speaks of breaking up the road or making it rough, something that was often done before an advancing army. Someone had hindered them. When Paul asks, who hindered you? It was a rhetorical question. He knew who it was, or at least who they were. It was the Judaizers. 
And while they appeared to be very religious, their teaching was not from God. Their persuasive words did not come from him. And their words were apparently very persuasive. When Paul said a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough, he may have been referring to the spread of their teaching throughout the Galatian church. As yeast permeates a lump of bread dough, so the Judaizers' teaching had permeated the church. And their teaching was certainly attractive. It sounded so religious. In fact, it added a little more religiosity to religion. It added works to faith, which sounded twice as good as faith alone. But it doesn't work that way. And the parable that Paul quoted could also be pointing out that just as leaven changes the nature of dough, so works of merit added to faith change the nature of faith. It changes it from faith in God into faith in ourselves. Paul is confident the Galatians will understand this now that he's said it, but at least 14 different ways in this letter. And we've been preaching this for weeks, the same message. We've got to get it. We've got to understand what we have in Christ. Without it, we lose our confidence. We lose our joy. We lose our promise. And we live in fear. So important. He knows they finally understand this. And he, and he reminds them that those who've been disturbing them, those who got them off track, will be judged for doing so. They will be judged for misrepresenting him. Those who teach something other than the simple grace of Christ will be judged by God for leading God's people astray. Apparently, they had even said that uh, Paul was teaching circumcision. They, he said they'd be judged for misrepresenting him. And they no doubt pointed to the fact that he had uh, Timothy circumcised, ignoring his reason for doing so. You remember when Timothy first joined in, in uh, Paul's ministry, he was half Jewish, and Paul did have him circumcised, but that was so he wouldn't be a stumbling block to the Jews to whom he was ministering. And when he went into the synagogue, and he was part Jewish, and he hadn't done what a good Jew should do. Paul did have him circumcised, but he was not preaching circumcision. He was not saying this is something everybody must do, that Gentiles must do if they want to be pleasing to God and be acceptable before him. Now, if he had said that, he wouldn't have been persecuted by the Jews. They would have accepted him and his teaching as merely an alternative form of Judaism. They wouldn't have had a hard time believing that because the stumbling block of the cross would have been abolished. Now, what does he mean by that? What is the stumbling block of the cross? Well, we speak of the offense of the cross, and the whole bloody picture of the cross is, is offensive. But the stumbling block of the cross is the realization that a man cannot save himself, that he can do nothing to find favor with God and is totally dependent on God's grace for salvation. That makes most people uncomfortable. Most want to think they earn God's favor, at least partially, 
and therefore deserve it, which makes them feel less indebted to God. You know, we don't like to feel indebted to someone. We don't even want to feel indebted to God. That obligates us. But the cross strips away all pretense of spiritual achievement and cuts out the ground for spiritual pride. That's why so many religious people reject Christianity and the centrality of the cross. And no doubt that's why the Judaizers were making inroads into the Galatian church. It feels good to think you're getting something that you deserve. It feels good to think you're doing something that earns salvation. And circumcision, they insisted, is the place to start. Paul countered their demand by saying something shocking. He said, would that those who are troubling you would even mutilate themselves. Literally, he says, they should cut themselves off. And when speaking of circumcision, that is very graphic. The pagan priests of Sybil actually castrated themselves as an act of devotion to their God. Paul may be suggesting that if circumcision gained favor with God, surely castration would gain even more. And if the Judaizers were going to teach that circumcision is pleasing to God, they should just go further. Maybe that would shock the Galatians into realizing the fallacy of thinking they could do anything to earn standing with God. Because once you start down the path of earning your standing with God, you can never do enough. You can never do enough. If you think you're earning your salvation because you're in your Bible a half hour a day, maybe you really need 45 minutes. If you think you're earning your standing before God by, by praying and, and actually getting on your knees and ignoring the pain, well, maybe, maybe it's not quite enough. Maybe you need to spend two hours in prayer, standing with your hands raised. You know, we could go on and on and on. If we think we're earning it, we'll never have the assurance we've done enough. There's always more that could be done. And so we have to realize there's nothing we can do to counter the effect, the consequence of sin. God's grace and his grace alone cleanses us and makes us accept. Now, as Mark pointed out, when we're set free, it doesn't mean we can just go crazy. And Paul talks about that. We, we can't say, well, then I'm just going to sin all the more, so we'll see what a gracious God he is. He says, no, God forbid. That's, that's ridiculous. Because if you understand the price that was paid to free you from sin, you're going to do everything you can to let God know how much you appreciate what he did. You're going to want to please him. You're going to want to love him. You're not going to slip into works salvation. But you are going to get busy doing things to let him know how much you love him. Knowing that what you do is acceptable to him. Because you've already been made acceptable.
Grace and law don't exist. And it's so easy for us to start tacking on requirements that we don't find in God's word. And making people doubt their standing before God. Paul says, would that they just be cut off. Grace and law don't mix. You're either trusting God to save you or you trust yourself. It's impossible to do both. So who are you going to trust? I pray that you've chosen to trust him. Let's express that in song.